Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this fourth episode of Series 5, we are looking again at ESG, that's Environmental, Social and Corporate Governance. And the strain, and I really do mean strain, it's coming under from an uneven global approach, the war in Ukraine and increasing economic challenges. Now, towards the end of 2021, we had the sense that we had a defined direction of travel for all things ESG coming out of the COP26 meeting in Glasgow. The International Sustainability Standards Board had put forward its thinking on disclosure and reporting requirements, and the world, financial services firms in particular, were gearing up to meet the emerging expectations and requirements with the road to net zero looking relatively clear. Since then, the world has shifted. The war in Ukraine, the sanctions imposed on Russia and the associated impact on energy supplies, increasing economic and supply chain issues, together with jurisdictions taking potentially distinctly different approaches to climate risk legislation. To consider the continuing compliance challenges associated with all of this and the future of ESG, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Lindsay Rogerson and Henry Engler. Hi, Susanna. Hi, Henry. Hello. Nice to be back. (laughs) Thank you for joining me. Um, So, Linz, let's start with you. Um, What's happening coming out of the EU? They do seem to be taking something of a lead and would would like to be seen to be setting the global benchmarks for all of this. So what's the EU doing and where is it going with all of this? And to what extent is it going to be extraterritorial? Um, whoa, a lot to get through, um, <laughs> Susanna, a lot to get through. And I just want to say, I know this is about ESG under strain, but I actually think compliance teams are under strain given all that is going on. Now, before um, I delve into what is actually happening, I'm just going to give you a little bit of a civics lesson on the how the EU uh legislation process works because this is this bear with me this is actually helps to explain how it all comes together and I just quick caveat this is not me saying EU system bad UK system good because I happen to be in the camp along with Paul Tucker um who most recently said this week that you know handing um unelected officials the power to make legally binding financial services rules as we're about to do in the UK is not a great plan so EU system. So in the EU system, there are three separate uh, prongs to making uh, all rules, including financial services law. So that is the commission who initially proposes the rules. Then there is the parliament um, who who, uh, sort of gets into the nitty gritty, quite often changes them. And then there is something called the council, which is made up of the finance ministries of all of the EU member states. So in the very final stage of EU legislation, before it becomes uh, hard and fast and um, everyone has to get on with it, is um, is something called the trialogue. And that's basically where these three groups lock themselves together in the room and they stay there until they bash out a compromise agreement. Why does that matter? So that matters because at the moment we don't actually have, although we have um, projected um, implementation dates for several of the so-called EU financial files, we don't actually have the final rules. So, for example, the um, green bond standard 
is um, the European Parliament. So the green bond standard from the green bond standard will flow um, in the current version of the text, which was produced by the European Parliament just last week. You won't be able to issue a green bond in the EU unless you have a transition plan with milestones and and, and it's all measured and checked and everything. So um, that's the proposal as it currently stands. That's about to go tri to trialogue. I can't quite remember when that one will finish. Then we have the Corporate Sustainable Reporting Directive, which will apply to um, uh, corporates um, in the UK, no, sorry, in, in the EU, but it will also catch the UK as it's extraterritorial and possibly, uh, you know, so the US and various other people in the world. To what level that will catch externals, EU externals, is still being debated in trialogue. Now, that trialogue is set to end um, with the French presidency, again, sorry, I should have mentioned the council presidency rotates every six months. So if you don't get something done by the, the middle of the year, you're into a new uh, new presidency. The next one is the Czech Republic. They have different priorities. So files can be stuck for ages. So anyway, so hoping to get that sorted. And then it would come into, it would apply from 2023 financial uh, year and to be reported in 2024. So all new. And then... Um, then there's one more, if you bear with me, there's something called the Corporate Sustainability Due Diligence Directive, which I learned uh, two weeks ago is being now shorthand as 3S3, CS3D. So um, that's what CS3D will be when you hear it mentioned. Um, and that, again, has the potential to be, um, that would impact on any new loans issued. And again, there's a question over how extraterritorial that would actually be. So that's what's coming. What's already here, Susanna, as uh, we've talked about before, is the um, Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulation. And that, um, I know we're going to come on to talk about labelling a bit later on, but um, as, as most people know, uh, that kind of, it wasn't intended that they would become labels, but they have become labels, three buckets, uh, article 6, Article 8, Article 9. Article 6 doesn't have to have any sustainability uh, objectives. Article 6 can have, as Article 8 can have some, and Article 9 are so, the so-called uh, taxonomy-aligned products. Now, financial services firms have been working very, and asset managers have been working very hard in getting their existing fund products into one or other of those buckets. And um, it's been very quite interesting when I've talked to firms, um, even some... Uh, firms who are entirely in the clean tech green space and wanted their products to be Article 9 and taxonomy aligned, their lawyers have actually said, mm, hang on a minute, there's a lot of you know litigation, regulatory risk attached to that in the first go round where we don't know how these are going to come out, so maybe go for Article 8. And actually, as was widely predicted, Article 8 has the bulk of the funds. However, just yesterday, the um, commission replied to some questions and answers, um, which uh, have the form of regulatory guidance in um, in the European structure. Um, and I was talking to um, a lawyer this morning, and she thinks that actually a lot of what is currently sitting in bucket eight, so Article eight, so has some sustainability, you know, um, preferences will be moved to Article 6 because they are clamping down on what counts as Article 8. So that's something 
to go away and look at. That just came out yesterday and I will put the link to it in the show notes. And thank you very much to our colleague James for finding that because it did not come up in a Google search and it did not come up in the RSS feed either. So, um, so... I've completely forgotten what you originally asked me, Susanna. I've been explaining all the nitty gritty, <laughs> and I've forgotten what you asked me. No, no, so no. Let's... Well, I asked you the most, the, the biggest question, pretty much, I could think of: Where are we getting to with the EU? What are they doing, and when are they doing it, and how extraterritorial it's going to be? So you've covered an awful lot of that, but I think the key issue, probably for an awful lot of firms, is the extraterritorial bit. When might we know? one way or the other. And and let me be very clear, the extraterritorial bit matters. It really does matter to firms because if you're sitting in the US, if you're sitting in Asia, if you're sitting in the UK and the EU has extraterritorial rules, you have to comply with at least two sets of rules at that point, potentially. And that's always incredibly difficult and expensive and sets you up to fail nine times out of 10 because the rules never align. So extraterritoriality, I think, is the key piece. Thank you, Susanna, for getting me back on track. So in terms of uh, what we know, we don't know yet about CS3D. That will be the end of the year. We don't know yet about CSDR. That will be um, hopefully the end of this month, uh, June. And um, But we already have extraterritoriality in SFDR because... Um, EU, the, the the asset management firms that are caught by that, and that's both listed and private equity, have to report on something called um, principal adverse indicators for their entire portfolio. So if they happen to own a firm in the US or they happen to own a firm in Australia or wherever, they are going to have to, they are going to have to ask those portfolio companies, for 18 um, indicators because they have to pull, combine all that information together um, into um, a principal adverse impact statement. Um, And so those requests are probably already going out um, now. So there is, so SFDR already is there and we have two other layers possibly coming soon. It, it's only going to get more complicated. I mean, and, and that puts it distinctly mildly. Um, Henry, let, let's flip to the other side of the pond. Um, so what's happening in the US? I mean, are they anywhere near the level of complication and thinking through that the EU is? Susanna, the, the, the title of this podcast is ESG under strain. I'm, I'm feeling under strain just listening to the lo- long list of things that, that Lindsay just described, um, which in comparison here in the US, the answer is no, we're not, we're not even close to where the Europeans and UK regulators are. Um, But we have had one major achievement in the past couple of months on the disclosure front, and that is from the Securities and Exchange Commission. After months and months and months of preparation and delays, they finally proposed um, a new uh, company rule on climate disclosure, which will affect all publicly traded companies, not just financial services. It's um, quite a piece of rulemaking. It's over 400 pages long. Um, The sheer scope of what they, and breadth and depth and 
all of the information that's in there um, prompted uh, a real pushback from many uh, sectors of the economy, many companies to say, hey, hang on, we need more time to digest this. And so the SEC happily agreed. Um, it's open for public comment now until, until June 17th. And to put it in sort of, I guess, a nutshell or to hit some of the high points, basically, uh, companies will, re will need to report on scope one and scope two emissions, which many have that information, many are doing voluntarily. Um, <clears throat> but the SEC is also asking for reporting on their scope three admissions, which, as we know, is reporting on the emissions from a company's suppliers. For financial services, basically what that means is that if you are lending to a manufacturing plant in the middle of Iowa, you will need to understand what that plant's emissions are and report them back to the SEC or include it in your annual report on um, climate disclosure. Now, that is raising a number of concerns, not least the complexity of it, the difficulty of finding that information, and capturing it, and then reporting it. And so, to put it mildly, this is a controversial piece of proposed uh, rulemaking. It is uh, seen in some quarters as a step beyond what the SEC is mandated to do. Many people argue this um, Lindsay referenced Paul Tucker. There are many people in the United States who feel that this should be the work of Congress, not an not an you know regulatory agency. Um, Chairman Gary Gensler will argue, well, we can't wait for Congress. We have to move on this because on climate, the clock is ticking. And as we know, our great U.S. Congress um, has difficulty agreeing on many things, not least things on, related to climate change. So there is, there is an issue of whether the SEC has this authority. Um, there's an issue of what they call materiality. Um, the SEC has posed these proposed these rules in terms of investor protection and investor education because of the trillions of dollars that are being invested in the United States and around the world on climate-related um, products and investments. Uh, there has been a clamoring from investors to gain greater access and insight into what companies are actually doing, not just what they say they are doing. And we'll talk more about that in a little while. But um, so that's that's the big news. Um, <clears throat> I think going forward, after the comment period is over, obviously the SEC will digest the hundreds and hundreds of comments that they've received and possibly make some changes to what they've proposed. And again, I think the scope three element will probably be the one that will be uh, the most in focus. How long then the SEC takes until it proposes a final rule? Not sure. Certainly at least a couple months, maybe longer. So I think we're probably looking at the end of summer at the earliest until we see a final rule proposed. And then there's just one 
thread out there that I'll just mention. There have been, um, because of the, the controversial nature of this proposal, there have been people who say they may challenge uh, the proposal in the courts. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the biggest lobbying group in the United States, um, basically hinted at that in its initial reaction when the when the rule was announced. Um, there are others as well who have raised that prospect. So if we do get a court challenge to this, how long will this be further bogged down? Don't know. Um, but even, let's say, if everything goes smoothly and we do get a final rule late summer, early fall, and it goes ahead, the SEC has given... Um, uh, companies basically more than a year to year and a half to comply with this. And so we really won't see any real new information emerging, you know, for a while. Um, and and I, I think rightfully so. I mean, because of the complex nature of this, um, I think it's only fair that the SEC allows companies to prepare, especially smaller companies, right? So ones who have not done a lot in terms of, you know, addressing their climate, their carbon footprint, and, and needing to get up to speed and have to do that. The bigger boys, you know, bigger firms, they've already, they have been, dis they have been disclosing this type of information for a while, for a while under the voluntary rules of the SEC, but um, to get you know, hundreds and thousands of companies to get up to speed on this is, is going to take some time. So that's really been the biggest development, Susanna. And um, I mean, there are a few other things which we can discuss a little bit later, but that's it's been the number one development. Thank you. Yes. And and, and I would, um, I think there's several things in there. I mean, if you get court challenges, it could last forever almost. I mean, the US legal system is is terrific, but there is a lot of processes to go through and, and if buts and maybes. The, the one one a bit I want to just pick up on also is we saw the first, if you like, ESG fine coming out of the SEC just recently. And BNY Mellon were the unfortunate uh, recipients of that. Could you just touch on that and what, I mean, one, two things, I suppose. One is the fine itself and what that was. But given we have this potential potentially long delay on rulemaking in the US on this. Are we in danger of, if you like, rulemaking or supervision by enforcement, potentially, mm. if we're already seeing fines? Yes, yes. The BNY Mellon uh, investment advisor uh, part of the institution was fined, um, as you say, by the SEC. Um, uh, earlier this week, it was a small fine. It was only $1.5 million, but I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that what they found was that in the fund's marketing of ESG-type investments, that not all of those products went under a sufficient review of whether or not they indeed had the types of investments that we would call sustainable and and, and ESG related. Um, this is the issue of greenwashing, right? Um, companies promoting themselves as being good corporate green ESG citizens, 
selling lots of products, labeling lots of products. I mean, this is specifically in the financial industry um, as green and, and sustainable. And when you take a closer look, you look under the hood, you'll find that many of them are not really measuring up, that there are um, not a sufficiently high percentage of actual uh, green type of investments in those funds. And so what the coming right on the heels of the fine, um, uh, the BNY Mellon fine, the SEC uh, this week issued a new proposal uh, specifically regarding the labeling of ESG fund products and proposing that the funds themselves have to now demonstrate that they must invest at least 80% of their assets in that are in line with the names and, 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 and the policies of these funds. So this is a new piece of uh, regulation uh, that was just proposed. It's specifically um, focused on addressing potential greenwashing. And um, it is also open to a comment period for 60 days. So we'll see where that goes. I think I think in terms of this proposal, it, it, it's been relatively positively embraced by the industry. Um, but um, yeah, I, I think you raise a very good point, Susanna. I, lacking actual regulation, uh, will the SEC you know, try to use the enforcement process uh, to to ensure that companies are abiding by, you know, what they feel are, you know, the types of activities that they're promoting or, or ensuring that they, these funds are what they say they are. Um, it's a slippery slope. I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know how this all going to play out, but as, you know, as you say, it could be a long time uh, until we get regulation on the books. And so what happens between now and then is that we could see a lot more of these types of enforcement actions. I mean, the SEC has created its own little ESG enforcement group uh, internally uh, designed to go after companies and to expose uh, any sort of potential, um, could be fraud or misleading, let's say, uh, types of um, activities uh, that pull investors in. So, yeah, yeah, we shall see. I, I'm about to let my uh, prejudices show, but I really think that regulation by <laughs> enforcement is a dangerous way to do regulation. But that that I yeah. will leave my yeah. prejudices out there for people to judge. Um, and and uh, just to be clear, also, I mean. Around the world, this is a very, very uneven approach. New Zealand has had its disclosure requirements, gosh, for ages now. Australia has now very much jumped on that bandwagon. They've had a change of premier, change of um, political ruling party, which have put, suddenly said, oh, we're going to be completely sustainable. We're going to be the world's economic um, powerhouse for renewables and all of this stuff. So you can see the disclosures things will be following very quickly along after that. Um, Linz, we've, we've touched on principal adverse impact statements, but given all of this, what in practice should poor beleaguered financial services firms actually be doing about all of this now? Um, yes, I will 
come on to that in a second, but I just thought, as I was listening to what Henry was saying, it's kind of dot, kind of dot, 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 joining up in my head um, occurred between what the SEC seems to be trying to do with the scope three requirement, obviously just in the climate space, and what the EU is doing with principal adverse indicators, albeit much broader range of issues, including diversity, um, uh, water, um, uh, human um, uh, slavery in you know in the uh, production chain and stuff. So wider, but it's a it's a similar. So there is some. I don't think any the people are starting from different places. They obviously the rules, you know, as we as we know very clearly in the EU experience, uh, you know, uh, um, I think about MIFID, PRIPS, and IMD about how what started off as identical text in those files ended up so differently with huge knock-on consequences for the financial services firms. Um, you know, so wording is, you know, it has to be, uh, you know, but they are, everyone is trying to, I think, get to the same place. Um, so what should firms do? So um, I think we have to, so if you're a, so if you're a corporate and you have European uh, funders or investors, um, you need to be having a conversation about what information they are. If they have not approached you, you need to approach them and ask them for what data they will be requiring from you so you can start to plan. The other thing is you're going to have to put in some kind of central governance structure around this because you cannot be giving different bits of information um, sorry, giving different answers to the same question from different people. You know, you, you, so it's it's and also you can't have those requests going everywhere. It's you, that's no way to run a business. So you're going to have to centralize. You know, um, put some governance into this as a as a very first thing, and then you're going to have to try and get this data and 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 uh, you know that is required, or at least have a very good explanation as to why you can't provide it um that might not be good enough um you know for for some for some financial services firms to hear anymore because they have to do these very public statements so i think um where i'm going with all this is i think firms need to be start well financial services firms certainly but beyond that we need to start thinking about transition plans what yours is going to look like looking around for some best practice. Um, obviously, the UK last week, two weeks ago, launched its um, call for evidence on what the UK transition plans would look like. Now, um, I, I should just say it's 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 not one template for everyone. You know, they are industry specific. What is being developed is industry specific. So your transition plan, if you are in oil, will look very different from your transition plan if you're in, I don't know, pick another industry. Met, uh, I don't know. Um, so that's all being worked on at the moment. That call for evidence is open until the 13th of July. Um, at the same time, obviously, the EU is working on what good in a transition plan should look like. We've had the ECB last year saying that should be mandatory as well. They're obviously already man mandatory in the UK, although it's a phase, phase in. You know, they're going to be um, relevant for Europe soon. Um but I would argue, and I, from talking around, I remember I interviewed um, the uh, US head of sustainability last year um, at um, HSBC. Not that chap. 
lady, okay? Um, and she was she was saying that already they are working. They have had an education program with their, all of their um, their lending teams about what they need to be looking for in terms of uh, you know a transition plan and stuff. So it's it's filtering there. And similarly, um, you know, uh, I've heard that the same. Well, I've been told by consultants that the same questions are now being asked by private equity firms you know, wherever they're hunting for investee, potential investee companies, you know, that they are having, you know, because they're thinking five years down the line to an exit plan. So they're also looking for transition plans. So, and your transition plan, the reason I'm mentioning this is it's a framework for getting all of those data points for how you will hit um, 2050, but also milestones in between. And I'm just going to throw in here, um, my uh, usual thing that also, while we've been talking regulation, there is also a lot of voluntary commitments having been made by the very large financial services firms. They are signatories to the um, the Race for Zero, um, the uh, UN Alliance, Banking Alliance for Net Zero, the Asset Owners Alliance for um, Net Zero, the Asset Managers Alliance for Net Zero. You know, you name it, you know, uh, the... With the exception of the Chinese GSIBs, everyone else has signed up to this, more or less. Um, BlackRock, Vanguard, they are signed up to these. So, you know, those firms have to set out how they are going to make it to, to net zero by 2050. And then to bring it back to Henry's point about, you know, the SEC, you know, looking at what firms are seeing... Um, there has been a lot of criticism that some of the firms that are signed up to these UN agreements and you know stood up and took the applause at COP26 have yet to actually produce any detail. Um, and Stephen Major of the Dutch Central Bank um, said recently, you know that you know banks need to be a lot more transparent about um, how they are going to get there. Um, you know they, they you know you can't just have these. Um, We'll get there, but you need your milestones and you need your your evidence, and so that will c- catch a lot of people um, as well. Thank you. Yes, if sorry, could, Henry, go on. Just, go on. just a quick quick observation, just on the banks and and the difference, you know, between what's happening in your world and over here. We have had nothing from the bank regulators so far on climate reporting. They're all working on it. The Federal Reserve has said, you know, they ha- they're working with banks to understand what their transition plans are. The OCC has said they're going to provide some guidance probably towards the end of this year, but that's been it. So, you know, we we are here again is another gap between the pace of supervision on climate risk from U.S. bank regulators versus what we've seen in Europe and the U.K. Do we think there is a real issue, let me put phrase it that way, that the private sector effectively may be steaming ahead with how it is going to tackle ESG, the disclosure, the reporting, the data gathering, the transition plans, and the regulation is simply going to end up playing catch up? Is that kind of the conclusion we're coming to? I think outside of Europe, yeah, actually, Um I think I think that is that is the case, and um, one of the th- reasons I think is you know as I was just talking about transition plans, but once we have transition plans, they are as um, somebody said to me recently, what people are going their feet are going to be held to the fire by these, and that's not just by regulators, 
you know, in terms of you've said this, you're doing that, that's not, you know, and there uh, was reporting in in uh, the UK of the Advertising Standards Authority. Um, apparently, um, it's a draft, the FT was leaked a, a draft uh, finding where they were, and it's HSBC again, um, greenwashing because they were they were in their advertising but not actually reflecting their full portfolio of loans and um so you know that's something you know last year we saw uh, shell um taken to the courts in um in holland for not having for not having a, a i think it was an, an aggressive enough transition plan you know it's appealing but it lost you know so once you've set your plan i think there is not just regulatory risk and this is not me saying don't set your plan because as i've already explained you're going to have to get have a have a plan um certainly it's compulsory in the uk shortly um but once you've got a plan you know shareholders ngos you know will come out of the woodwork and there's going to be huge litigation at risk attached to not getting on with this so to your point susanna about you know are the corporates are the banks just going to you know go ahead of the regulators you know, I, I think certainly there's, you know, there's certainly a, a a big chance that yeah, they they will have to. I I think with the sheer volume of investment in sustainable products around the globe, that the investor community will continue to hold companies' feet to the fire, so to speak, and not to mention all of the activist groups, interested parties call them stakeholders um this yeah this is not going to go away um just because regulators are you know sort of behind the curve if you will um and i and i think that 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 sort of market pressure if you will 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 remain um and probably you know begin to single out okay which companies are doing being proactive on these issues which companies are saying not just the right things, but actually backing them up with, you know, real action. Um, and one could argue, I suppose, that that is over the long term a wise management and and strategic position to take. Oh, I would agree, but I think I think there's a bigger picture issue there as well because. If the private sector goes ahead and does it, and I think that's terrific because nobody nowadays is truly going to say you don't need to have transition plans. However, if everybody is doing their own thing, however, you know, slight those differences, once regulation does play catch up, everybody is likely to have to change. And transition plans and the disclosure and the data and the reporting, that infrastructure you are going to have to build to accommodate compliance is expensive to start with and will be equally expensive to change once regulation catches up. So again, be aware. Yeah, I just I'm um, on your point about, you know, people coming from it different places. There, you know, the the global efforts on this and even actually the national efforts, they are they are building on the same blocks. So um the EU uh sustainability reporting standards, they draw on TCFD. 
um, the UK transition plans are going to draw on um, TCFD, um, the work done by the global uh, GFANGS. I've forgotten exactly what it stands for. Glo- Glasgow Glasgow Alliance for, for something uh, for financial net zero. I think Glasgow Financial Alliance for net zero. That's it. Um, and also the um, ISB standards, which we have talked about before. Uh, got that go ahead at, at COP. Um, obviously, um, you know they will be out by the end of the year. So in terms of practical advice to firms it's like you know use the, the 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 standards that are starting to come out as you know when you're gathering your data when you're thinking about what you're reporting when you're drawing your plan so you know there because that is the building blocks on which a lot of the regulation will actually is already or will be delivered against completely however i'm, I'm going to be God, i'm having a grumpy moment on this podcast aren't i um <laughs> I think, as ever, the devil is in the detail, and that will be what firms absolutely have to be wary of. Build your systems with sufficient inherent flexibility that when the regulations do come out in whatever jurisdiction you happen to be operating, changing the systems when regulation finally plays catch up isn't going to be overly expensive. It will be expensive, but if you can make it so it's not overly expensive, you're probably doing a really good thing. Um, we're sort of running out of time here. So, But the one thing we have to mention, having mentioned HSBC twice, is the reputational risk that Stuart Kirk is now facing. I mean, he's been suspended from work for basically saying climate risk was overhyped at a conference. I would, in all of the caution we are expressing in this, given the politics, given the media focus on all of this, do not underestimate the reputational risk for both firms and individuals associated with anything to do with ESG. And what happens to Mr. Kirk, we will have to simply wait and see. I mean, to be absolutely fair to him, as part of his speech, I think he made some very good points. Equally, I think he made some slightly incendiary ones. So, you know, we we will see where that one actually pans. Um, We really are running out of time. So, Takeaways from compliance officers. I mean, the one bit I would very much pick up on is the need for data governance in all of this. Linz has mentioned it. Henry has mentioned it. But you absolutely have to build a robust, but also, as I've said, flexible infrastructure around your data governance capacity and capability. I would also suggest very strongly that you expressly include the governance around that in all of your monitoring programs for compliance, risk and audit. If you can't reproduce the reporting and disclosures made and and robustly reproduce those and have the evidence backing them up, you are storing up potentially enormous trouble for the future. So build that infrastructure, invest in that infrastructure very well up front, and you've got a fighting chance of this working for you pretty well in the future. Henry, takeaways for you? Uh, Totally agreed on the governance point, uh, Susanna, as we've discussed before. You you will not get the E and S right if you don't get the G right. And and that needs to come from the top of the organization on down. Um, You need accountability at the board level. You need people in charge of these issues. Um, who are responsible for ensuring that you have the systems in place and you know the meth- methods to capture data and so on. And so if you don't have the governance, 
then you're going to fail at this. No, agreed. Linz? Just two very quick ones for me. As I mentioned earlier on, the commission put out some question, a Q&A yesterday, which I would recommend any fund management, asset management firm who has already categorized their uh, products under SFDR has a has a look at because um, there is m- much more granular expectations um, than origin than originally um, are in that document, and um, the the um, other thing is just be clear um, about what information you are going to be requesting from you know under SFDR if you you know your personal impacts uh, adverse impact statements. Be clear about what information it is that you are going to be gathering from those firms and make sure you get those data requests out because firms cannot manufacture the information overnight. They will need time to get that information themselves. And so, you know, save yourself a lot of strain down the road and get those requests in early. Brilliant. Thank you both very much indeed. I think that was a fascinating conversation. And thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified as ever, do hope you found it both interesting and useful. There are going to be a lot of links in the episode notes, so we please do have a good look through those. And also, as ever, I'll include the link for further information on Thomson Reuters regulatory intelligence itself. And please do take the time to review the podcast and let us know for any future suggestions for topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified. A podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.